Till Death Do Us Part is a lighthearted and sometimes satirical true crime podcast where we present our dysfunctional married take on serious cases involving other dysfunctional relationships. We hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the 95th episode of Till Death Do Us Part. I'm Daniel. And I'm Melissa. I don't know about the rest of you, but this summer, I'm already exhausted. It's busy. Oh my gosh. We need a helicopter. I drove all over Bakersfield last week. It was insane. And it hasn't stopped. It's like baseball, summer school, volleyball, camps, doctor's appointments, vision appointments, school appointments. Ugh. Remember I, when summer used to be fun? That it's supposed to be. You're supposed to just chill and relax. Not anymore. Complain about the heat. Have kids, they said. No. Have two. Oh God. At least we stopped at two. In Bakersfield, everybody has three. It's the Bakersfield trio. Then uh two can gang up on one. So then you'd have those issues as well. It's not even that. I'd be driving another one somewhere. Oh, All gosh. day long. Oh, well. Oh, well. Good happy, job. Happy wife, happy life. Yeah. <laughs> no, you sound happy. <laughs> yeah, people so can, joyous. People can feel it right now. <laughs> I just want to do nothing and lay by the pool and watch Vanderpump Rules. <laughs> Your joy is entering people's ear holes right now. Oh, gosh. All right. I need to snap out of it. And that show is awful. It is. It is so hard for me to watch it. That's it's why I don't really make you difficult. watch it. It's just, but because it exists, it makes it difficult. All right, let's get off on just a second of Vanderpump Rules because everybody's into it. That's the only reason I started watching season 10 was because of this big old cheating scandal, right? Wait, 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 wait. What? They made 10 seasons of yes. that horrible thing? I know, I know. Anyways, oh, I had to stop and think about it for a second that these people are kind of in the same age bracket as us. Yeah, I guess so. Some of them are in their late 30s, early 40s. That's our box. And yet they have nothing to show for it besides drama and fake boobs. And there's nothing wrong with that. No. The fake boobs. I mean, drama, You can. we don't care. We don't want that. All right. Well, we're not going to turn this into a reality show. It's fake. Talking fake. It's all fake. It's all scripted. It's ridiculous. I know. Okay. I know. All right. But it's the only thing keeping me going this summer (laughs) so far. Seriously? No. (laughs) All right, Daniel, you got some factoids for me? Yes. It has a lot to do with Vanderpump. Oh, Lord. Okay. Ready? Yes. Fact. That's a Dwight. By the way, throwback to Dwight from The Office for all of those of you that have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) Fact. Cows don't have upper front teeth. What? (laughs) See, you didn't know that. Yes. No. How do they chew their cud? They do have uh, molars on the top, but they're way in the back of their mouths. So where you'd expect to have the big front chomper teeth? They have a thick layer of tissue called a dental pad. And that is so it basically creates this soft but very tough skin. 
that meets up against their bottom teeth that they can grab grass or whatever and rip it out of the ground. That is wild. Isn't it? I had no idea. Have they ever had top front teeth? Like, was no. this like an evolution thing with cows? <laughs> no. And it's not just cows. It's sheep and goats. What? Yeah. I guess I've never seen them smile. You haven't seen like a goat look at you and they go, nah, and you only see their bottom teeth? Well, yeah, but I thought they always just had really bad um, <laughs> underbites. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they look like uh, English bulldogs, all of them. <laughs> Kind of, yeah, except they don't have any front teeth because they have a pad that actually meets their bottom teeth and then so they can grab grass and rip it out of the ground. Well, yeah, they do kind of chew like my grandpa when he wasn't wearing his upper dentures. Yeah, because obviously people have different <laughs> different teeth, right? But yeah. let's say our teeth overlap each other. They don't actually come in contact if you were to just take a big mouthful of grass, <laughs> the grass would slide out from between your teeth. Oh, okay. See, so they would need to be able to grasp it tightly. Right. So that's how they do it. Makes sense. So isn't that just amazing? Well, and they only live on grass. So it's not like they For need canines to like rip meat off of bone. Yeah, for the most part. All right, I get it. Um, Speaking of flesh... That tiny pocket in jeans was originally designed to store a pocket watch. Did you know that? In jeans. Yeah, so that inner no, I, pocket. No, I know what the pocket the, is, but. That was for a pocket watch. But they just kept that design because originally jeans had four pockets. Two front pockets, the pocket watch pocket, and one back pocket. I didn't really realize jeans were so prevalent in the era that. They used pocket watches instead of regular yeah. wrist watches. Yeah, they started in the eighteen late 1800s That's when they cool. really became prevalent. All right. But at the time, people had pocket watches, so they designed a little pocket just for that watch. Aw, that's so cute. Yeah. Now you put your joints in there. I, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so they still put that little <laughs> pocket. I had no idea what it was for. Now I know. Okay. I'm all over the map here. Did you know lemons float in your water, but limes sink? I guess so. That's going to blow people's minds. You're going to go try it. I have limes in the fridge. Now I got to try it. Like a whole lime or if you cut it up? Okay, I'm going to read it. It says, because limes are more dense than lemons, they drop to the bottom of a glass, while lemons float at the top. Okay. So I've never thought about that. I'm trying to and picture it. And now I it. have to try it out. It's like a science experiment. Is that why they use limes? Like a slice of lime in a alcoholic beverage? Whereas if you're like, I just want a glass of ice water with a slice of lemon in it, and the lemon stays on the top. No, because people do either or. Huh. All right. Well, I'm going to have to try it out. Okay. This was interesting. Did you know the first time the word period in reference to menstruation, <laughs> was in 1985. What? Yeah, Back to the Future. Wait, the movie Back to the Future? No, I'm just, I'm referencing oh, the date. Oh, okay. Is that confusing? No. Okay, 1985, first time they referenced menstruation by using period. What did they use to call it? It came via a line in a Tampax commercial. Quote was... 
feeling cleaner is more comfortable. It can actually change the way you feel about your period. Do you know who did that commercial? Was it a famous actress? Courtney Cox. <gasps> what? Yep. Lucky. The friends, Courtney Cox. She got to name the menstruation. I hope this is true. I don't know. I found <laughs> it. So if it's not true, I'm going to sound like a real idiot. So I'm just telling you I found it on the internet, which means it's probably not true, but <laughs> whatever. Wow. I had no idea. I don't ever remember calling it anything other than that. But that was 1985. The term wouldn't even made any sense to you. Maybe not. I just found this, so I don't know. That would be a good question for someone older than us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, right? if you know the answer to that. <laughs> if someone's what like, what did you used to call it? Yeah, like did people in the 70s? Would they call it Shark Week? Probably. Or Chum in the Water? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> or The Shining? You want to go swimming? No. I always send you a picture of the elevators and the shining, yeah. the blood coming out of them. Oh, yeah. That's always. And he's like, oh, all right. That explains the it. Best, best um, text to get for sure. <laughs> I'm just warning you. <laughs> oh, Lord. Okay. We have covered a few cases that involve arsenic. And, and old lace. And, of course, the arsenic and old lace movie, right? <laughs> Your favorite movie. Again, fact. People once ate arsenic to improve their skin. Yes. Don't say you're supposed oh. to be surprised at all of this garbage I'm reading <gasps> to you. What? People did what? So Victorians, some of their favorite cosmetics were riddled with arsenic. But there were products on the market in the late 19th century. This one referenced a Dr. James P. Campbell. No relation to the soup company. I don't know. It might be. <laughs> Sorry. Dr. James P. Campbell's safe arsenic complexion wafers, and they were meant to be eaten. They claimed to get rid of freckles, blackheads, and other facial disfigurements. Yes. I can't think that was healthy. No. All right. I'm done, but I'm going to give you one little nugget. Give it to me, baby. To, just to leave with you. Ancient Greeks had a number of concoctions meant to enhance sexual performance. One of them was meant to cause a lasting erection, <laughs> and it involved smearing the penis with a mix of honey and crushed pepper. <laughs> what if it got in the in the hole? I, I don't. God. <laughs> honey and pepper. Ooh. And then you'd stick it in an ant hole. <laughs> oh, ouch. <laughs> Gives you some adrenaline. Yeah, so supposedly it enhanced the desire to have adult aerobics. No. That, I didn't, don't get mad at me. I'm just saying that's, just that's, messy. that's just what it says. <laughs> it also references that the Greeks used an unknown Indian plant. So we don't know. They're just making it up. Unknown Indian plant, which is said to cause powerful erections after rubbing it on the genitals. <laughs> Some Greek men claimed that under the influence of this plant, they achieved a sexual climax up to 12 times. What? While some Indians claimed they climaxed 70 times. Lies. It's like Sting when he lies about his sexual conquest with his wife. 
They yeah. talk about doing it for like 12 hours. Yeah. You know what would happen? What? It would sting. <laughs> in order to cancel the effects of these potions, individuals would apparently pour olive oil onto the genitals. I guess bring it bring it on down, so to speak. <laughs> all right. So I got, you're welcome. The end. I'll stop. <laughs> Carry on. Let's get on to murder and attempted murder. Uh, no, we're we're talking about murder, darling. Okay, murder. Well, thank you for your factoids. I learned a lot. You're welcome. Honey and pepper. <laughs> Daniel. Melissa. <laughs> Are you ready for my case? Yeah. Do I have a choice? No, you don't. Then You're yes. stuck. This is the case of Beulah Anon and Belva Gardner oh, boy. with the women of Murderous Row. Murderous Row. Yes. Is that like a street? It's in a prison. Oh. Or it's in a jail. Okay. Now, I've heard Beulah's last name pronounced as Anon and Anon, but I've heard it pronounced Anon way more, so I'm going to go with that. And in the drunk history episode on this case, they said Anon. They're super factual, so I'm going to go with dark, <laughs> with drunk history. Good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Can I please refer to the first one as Bueller? <laughs> That would help me out. So when you say Beulah, then I'll, I'm just, as soon as you said that, I'm just thinking Bueller. Well, you got to do it properly. Bueller. <laughs> Bueller. I can't, I can't mimic that awesome actor's voice. Bueller. 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 No, it's Beulah. Yes. Okay. Beulah, I'm sorry. You've tried to start and I stopped you. All right. Well, don't get mad, but I am splitting this episode into two parts. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm leaving. I'm over it. I'm hot. I feel like each case deserves its own episode and discussion, but they are very much connected, and I'll tell you why eventually. I'm so sorry, babe. This is like clickbait. <laughs> I know. I wanted to start off this episode letting everyone know that 85% of my information came from actual articles written in the Chicago Tribune by reporter Maureen Dallas Watkins. She worked at the Chicago Tribune for eight months in 1924. Maureen had over 50 articles published during her short stint as a reporter, and she was granted access to these women in prison and was at every inquest and trial. Okay, so this is old. Yes, we're going right. old. Gotcha. Old school. It's an oldie but goodie. Your favorite. <laughs> the good old days. During the roaring 1920s, Chicago experienced a surge of violent crimes throughout the Windy City. Chicago was even being referred to as the Wild West of the modern era. As prohibition was established to squelch the moral depravity of the nation, there was actually a rise in violent crimes and underground markets that relied heavily on illegal alcohol distribution, prostitution, and gambling. No, I don't <laughs> believe it. In 1924, Chicago was experiencing a sort of epidemic. 
the killing of one's husband or lover had become in vogue. These homicidal women feared very little punishment. They became infamous with their faces splashed across the front pages of tabloid magazines, making each one the talk of the town, at least for a couple of weeks. That is until the next celebrated husband killer made her way into the Cook County Jail and walked down the gray cinderblock hallway to what was lovingly referred to as Murderous Row. These self-made widows were acquitted in the Chicago court system as long as they followed the rules. They were beautiful. They seemed meek and mild and had a fascinating tale of abuse and or neglect, committing a quote-unquote love crime. So these women all kind of just had it and started whacking their husbands. Well... Not necessarily their husbands. We're also going to talk about their lovers. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Their boyfriends, their boy toys. The all-time acquittal rate for these female killers was 90%, which means only 10% were sentenced and found guilty. So most likely they'd get away with it. Exactly. As long as the murder committed was unaided and not particularly grisly. I'm going to tell you two of the most famous cases during this time in Chicago's seating past. And I'm also going to kind of give you little snippets of other ones that had happened during this time and who were also residents of Murderous Row. Thank you. And then I'm going to tie them all together at the end. Awesome. Of the second part. Of Of the second part of of the third part. (laughs) No third parts. Beulah Anon was considered the most beautiful of all the love killers. On April 3, 1924, her husband, Albert Anon, a mechanic, received a phone call at his garage from his hysterical wife, 23-year-old Beulah. She was crying into the phone saying that a man had tried to assault her in their home and that she had shot him. Al rushed home to their apartment at 817 East 46th Street. Inside the bedroom he shared with Beulah was a young man, propped against the wall and sitting in a puddle of his own blood, and he was dead. The police were called at 6.05 p.m. and were quickly on the scene, surprised to see such a beautiful young woman involved in the murder of a man who was not her husband. According to witnesses, Beulah was young, slender, bobbed auburn hair, wide-set appealing eyes, up-tilted nose, translucent skin, an ingenious smile, refined features, intelligent expression. She was an awfully nice girl and was extremely intoxicated. Of course she was. Beulah wore a fawn-colored dress and hose, black shoes, a dark brown coat, and a brown Georgette hat that turned back with a youthful flair. At 6.20, a Dr. Clifford Oliver arrived on the scene. After looking over the body, he said that the man had been dead for no more than 30 minutes. The beautiful Beulah was taken down to Hyde Park Station later that evening. 
She told police that the man she had shot was 29-year-old Harry Colstead, a co-worker of hers at the tenant's model laundry. Beulah insisted that Harry's advances had caused her to shoot him in order to save her honor. Oh, damn. But once the liquor had worn off a few hours later, she changed her story. Crying hysterically, Beulah confessed that she had lied, that Harry was her lover, and that he had threatened to leave her so she killed him rather than lose him. Why wouldn't she just go with the first story? I don't know. Because they would have believed that, right? Looking at her, they'd be like, oh my gosh, yeah, we can see, we could totally see that. She should have just. Just go with it. Just kept with it. That was a decent story. It was. I mean. And it turns out that will be her story. Okay. All right. Good. (laughs) Well, yes, Bueller, go go with that story. Beulah May Sheriff was born in November of 1899. She ran away from her small life in rural Kentucky when she was just 16 years old. She had dreams of marrying rich and becoming a famous cabaret singer and actress. That's what I want to do. Yeah, don't we all, Beulah? But Beulah didn't get far. She eloped with a young man named Perry Stevens from Owensboro, Kentucky. And after giving birth to a baby boy, Perry asked Beulah to leave, stating that she was not the mothering type. She happily obliged, and the two divorced a year after marrying, and the baby remained with his father. So right after the baby was born, Beulah was back out partying. How old was she? Dating other men. She was, I think she was 18. Oh, okay. She really liked the attention of men. So he's like, hey, um, yeah, you don't really seem like a mom and a wife to me. So why don't you just pack it up and go? And she's like, all right. Yeah. I'm out. <laughs> you don't have to tell me twice. You're going to keep the kid? Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm take care of the kid. <laughs> all right. Peace. Later. <laughs> Dang. I know. It's kind of sad. Some women just shouldn't be moms, and that's okay. All right. Beulah moved to Louisville, where she met Sweet Albert Anon. The couple moved to Chicago and were married on March 29, 1920. Al worked hard to give Beulah everything that she wanted. He worked 14 hours a day, seven days a week, making $60 a week. It's about like me. Which is approximately $800 today. Yep. So, I mean, that wasn't bad. In 1924, to be making $800 a week, that's $3,200 a month. Okay, but we'll put it in today's perspective. If I made $800 a week and I had to work 14 hours a day, seven days a week to do it, that would be pretty bad. Yeah, that's not fun. No, no, no. That's like less than minimum wage. And Al would take Beulah out every night to dance and drink. Eventually, the lack of sleep caught up with Al, and he tried to rein Beulah in, but she got bored very quickly and started going out to the cabaret and the speakeasies alone. Oh, gosh. She liked to party. What could go wrong? A lot of things could go wrong. <laughs> in, the, in the 20s and in, in uh, Chicago. Chi- Chicago. 
She was having a good time, this girl was. Sounds like it. Mm -hmm. She was drinking, smoking, dancing, singing, and banging. But not her husband. Oh, God. See? Okay. (laughs) I didn't even write that down. That just came to me. So he's stuck working all day. I get it. I've many times 14 hours a day, right? For seven (laughs) days a week. And I go out and party. And you go out and party. It gets old. Right. Right, because I I'm like I come home and I'm like, where would you do today? You're like, I was just out banging dudes and partying, <laughs> and I'm like, damn it, <laughs> all the time. So, yeah, I could that would get old. Poor thing, you're not, like Al. I for I am totally Al. That's it. I'm gonna no, he's I'm not gonna quit going unemployment. <laughs> no, he's work not. something hurt myself. I don't know. Oh please. In September of 1923, Beulah got a job as a bookkeeper at the laundromat where she met Harry. They hit it off rather quickly. The two would go for walks together. Harry would visit Beulah at her apartment when Al was at work. And they drank booze together and eventually started having adult aerobics. Well, at least they're staying active. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, walks and... Sex. So this That's is, all you need. This show should have been called When Harry Met Beulah. <laughs> That's awesome. Sorry. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. All, all right. right. Here we go. Carry on. Al, the husband, was questioned the night of the murder. He identified the thirty-eight caliber gun as his. He told the officers that he did not recognize the man he found dead in his bedroom. Al also said, I've been a sucker. That's all. Simply a meal ticket. I've worked 10, 12, 14 hours a day and took home every cent of my money. We's bought our furniture for the little apartment on time and it was all paid off but $100. I thought she was happy. I didn't know. Poor guy. I kind of feel bad for Al. Another one. Like, just. (sighs) The day after the shooting at the coroner's inquest, Beulah's official statement was read. She once again changed her story of what happened to Harry. So this is her story that I'm about to read you. Oh, good. Harry had called Beulah early Thursday morning after Al had gone to work. He was going over to the west side to buy some wine and had stopped by her apartment 15 minutes later to get the cash to actually purchase the beverages or the alcohol. Beulah had the afternoon off from the laundromat and Harry joined her at the apartment with two quarts of wine at around noon. After drinking for about an hour, the two began to quarrel. She teased him about being Billy the boy with an auto. I have no idea what that means. Um, I looked it up. He has a car? I I don't know. Billy the boy with an auto. Oh, Billy. (laughs) And he scolded Beulah for doing things she shouldn't. She shouted back, you're just a four flusher. No, she did not say that. <laughs> and called him a jailbird. Oh my gosh. A four flusher means that you are bluffing while holding a weak hand in poker. So I guess that means that he's a liar. Oh, okay. You I don't know. Four flusher. <laughs> I don't know. I looked it up. We have to start using that. Oh, absolutely. In our day to day conversations. 
Just she also, slip, slip in a four-flusher here and there. Well, she also called him a jailbird because Harry had served time in the penitentiary for a statutory crime. Which How old means is he? He's 29. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, so he was... All right. So he's older. He's older, but he had gotten in trouble for having sexy time with somebody much younger than him. Oh, okay. You yeah. said statutory, and immediately I filled in the blank of rape. Yeah. Well, they're saying statutory crime, which is now statutory rape, meaning that he gotcha. was having sexy time with somebody under the age of 18. Oh, all right. Yeah. Although, this yeah. is early 1900s. So right. that was not unusual. Right. Because even back then, men's lifespan was like 40 yeah, and so, people were getting married at like 15. Right. So. And and most men weren't really established until they were older. But and he got one, he got busted for something. So Oh no, I'm not. He yeah. did something bad. Yeah, no, clearly. Harry screamed at Beulah that she was no good. A revolver was lying on the bed and both sprang for the gun. Beulah was able to get her hands on the gun first. And she shot him as he was rushing towards her. But Harry had been shot in the back. Ooh, that's that's quite a trick. Yeah. yeah. And my question was, is that why was the revolver lying on the bed? It was just chilling on the bed. That's a great question. So, Who just has a revolver laying around? Right. Usually they would be under the bed or in a drawer or up in the closet. Plus, if they're doing the aerobics class... That thing would kind of dig into a rib or something, you know? Unless that was part of the sexual fantasy. Oh, that's true. I don't know. I but don't know loaded, what they were using that for. Yeah, I don't think you'd want a loaded gun as a prop. <laughs> no, don't Just do saying. that. Yeah. No. Beulah's statement included questions asked of her and her answers. She was asked, why didn't he get that far? She responded, Darn good reason. I shot him. Beulah caught Harry as he slipped to the floor, saying, My God, you've shot me. She tried to tell him it wasn't true. His hands were still soft. His face was soft. But she couldn't feel his heart because it was all bloody. Uh, These are her statements, not mine. Because there was a big hole there. She confessed to having intimate relations with Harry only three times. Just three times. Total or in that encounter? Total. Oh, okay. The shooting of Harry happened around 2 p.m. Beulah didn't call her husband until about 6. Ooh. So for four hours, she played jazz music on the phonograph while she danced and paced around while Harry slowly bled out. So he didn't die immediately. He suffered. Oh, my gosh. While she listened to jazz music, drank, and <sighs> danced around his body. All yeah. right. Yeah, that's wild. Al refused to talk during the inquest. He just shook his head to all the questions. Under advice from her attorney, Beulah did not make a statement. After the inquest, it was announced that the shooting of Harry was murder and that Beulah Anon was charged with his murder. 
She went back to Murderous Row at the Cook County Jail to await trial. If found guilty, she could get the death penalty. All the while giving interviews in jail for local tabloid magazines, accepting gifts, flowers, and food, and telling the local press that she was pregnant with Al's baby. Who the hell is bringing her gifts, flowers, and food? Who does... They were celebrities. These women on Murderous Row were celebrities. People don't have anything else better to do. No. It would not never occur to me to take someone who's a celebrity that's in jail. Anything. Okay, but let's talk about what we were just talking about was Vanderpump Rules. So people are all into watching this quote-unquote reality television show. No, they're not. Because of all, Daniel, because of all of the drama going on with this cast of characters. Now, back in the 1920s, all they had was the radio and they had these tabloid magazines. And so they were getting all of this information, this soap opera, this reality television. And so these women were on murderous row. They were right there. And so people would go and try to meet them, try to talk to them, send them things. They were local celebrities in Chicago. So this is the most exciting thing going on right now. Absolutely. In Chicago at yes. the time. Especially okay. because we have prohibition. No, I, I guess I, I get that. So. Yeah. No, and I can see how prohibition was really working well, especially for her. <laughs> it wasn't. It, uh, it just drank it really all changed day. everything. Yes, it was prohibition was from 1920 to 1933. And the amount of violent crimes went up substantially during this time. Yeah. The moral depravity of the U.S. was just ticking down, 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 down. Right. Because sometimes people want to do things that they're not supposed to do. Yeah. And you kind of get off on it. Like she did. So you drink, you go to these secret clubs, you smoke, you dance. The underground speakeasies. Man, I think I would have had a good time (laughs) during this era. I got to tell a quick side story. Oh, boy. Didn't I just tell a quick side story? Yeah, I'm going to do a side story to your side story. Okay, go for it. So recently, it was a year ago or whatever, we went to Vegas. So we toured the uh, Mob Museum. That was cool. And underground in the basement they have a speakeasy right so it's it's made up to look like how it was back then the funny thing was which i was laughing is during the museum you had to wear your mask right for covid <laughs> but once we got down there in the speakeasy as soon as you sat down order drinks you didn't have to wear a mask anymore it was hilarious <laughs> and it was so telling especially back then right so they're like no alcohol it's bad for you and then people are all meeting in these speakeasies and just drinking anyway so it was kind of a it it almost it was funny because it kind of matched in a way i think we went behind a a bookcase oh maybe it was like we opened a bookcase because you had to kind of find the speakeasy yeah, it was, but it, the point was, it was like you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing. Yeah, it felt naughty. So during COVID, right, we're there and took our masks off and then ordered drinks in the basement of the Mob Museum in the speakeasy. So it was just hilarious. That anyway. was pretty fun. It was good drinks, too. Actually, I forget what it was actually called. Actually, they were fabulous. Yeah. yeah. If you're going to Vegas, go to the Mob Museum. It, it is really cool. It's I recommend It's fascinating. It. Yep. And go to the speakeasy underground there. All right, well, we'll go back to the story. I digress. 
So I left you where she's telling the press that she's pregnant gotcha. with Al's baby. Yes, she's pregnant. Okay. Sure. The trial began on May 24th, 1924. So they were moving fast, really fast. Yeah. Top of their pile. Beulah took the stand and faced the all-male jury. She was ready. She took her top off. No. Oh. Beulah wore a navy twill dress tied at the side with a bow, a new crystal necklace, and she spoke in a childlike and soft southern accent. Beulah was calm and charming, speaking directly to the men who held her fate in their hands. She told the jury that they both grabbed for the gun. Beulah was asked, did you shoot this man? I did, she answered. Why, her attorney asked. Because he was going to shoot me. She told the jury about Harry coming over to their home in the morning to get the $6 for alcohol and his return later that afternoon with two quarts of moonshine. I saw he was drunk and begged him to go, but he refused and asked me to take a drink first. So I did, just to get him to leave. But he still wouldn't go, though I begged him to. Told him my husband might come home and that he would shoot us both. And what did he say to that? asked her attorney. He said to hell with your husband. <laughs> <laughs> Harry then insisted that she take another drink, to which she did. Then he said, let's have a little jazz, and he played the Victrola. And then he said, come into the bedroom. I refused and begged him to go. She stuttered a bit, and her attorney encouraged Beulah to continue. She closed her eyes and went on. I told him of my delicate condition. But he refused to believe me and boasted that another woman fooled him that way and that he had done time in the penitentiary for her. And I said, you'll do another. And he said, you'll never send me back. And I said, I'll call my husband and he'll shoot us both. Wow. <laughs> okay, wait. And what did he say to that? Asked her attorney. He said, where is the gun? Beulah then told the jury that Harry started for the bedroom. He was a step ahead of her, but by the time he got to the bed, she was even with him. Harry grabbed for the gun, but she got it first. He then put up his hand and said, I'll kill you yet. Harry started toward her and she pushed him away with her left hand and shot. Beulah told how she had wiped his face had turned off the phonograph record, and had sunk down in a daze beside the body. She denied any intimacy with Harry. Mm, sure. The prosecution came in swinging. One by one, he read her the questions and the answers that Beulah had given, in which she had confessed to killing Harry in a jealous rage. She said she didn't remember and rejected every statement in the confession. The state's attorney also reminded the jury that if Harry was rushing towards Beulah to attack her, why was he shot in the back? Only someone running away would be shot in the back. Yes. In his closing argument, the prosecutor said to the jury, 
The verdict is in your hands, and you must decide whether you will permit a woman to commit a crime and let her go because she is good-looking. You must decide whether you want to let another pretty woman go out and say, I got away with it. Nice. In less than two hours, the jury was back. They announced that they had found 25-year-old Beulah not guilty of the murder of Harry Colstead. <laughs> she was acquitted. Oh, my God. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. Beulah thanked the jury, saying, Oh, I can't thank you. You don't know. You can't know. But I felt sure that you would. The very next day, Beulah announced that she was leaving Al. I have left my husband. He is too slow. <laughs> Are you serious? Yes. He is too slow? <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, God. That might mean sexually. <laughs> uh, probably. Or it, no matter which way, it's... Poor Al. I feel so sorry for Al. The couple were divorced in 1926 on the charge that Al had deserted her. But she announced that she... I know, I know, I know. It's too slow. Okay. In 1927, Beulah married boxer Edward Harlib. After three months of marriage, she filed for divorce, claiming that Edward had been cruel to her. Four years after the acquittal, in 1928... Beulah died from tuberculosis at the Chicago Fresh Air Sanitarium. She was returned home and is buried in Kentucky under the name Beulah Stevens. Damn. Yeah, so she got the she TB, got hers. Huh? Yeah, she got hers in the end, I guess. Wow. So they said that while she was on the stand and she was giving this whole show and, you know, holding her stomach. She wasn't pregnant, by the way. No, of course that not. That was just used to get the jury's sympathies and the sympathies of the people of Chicago. So, so they couldn't prove it. I guess back then they just... Yeah, you could say you were pregnant at any time. It wouldn't occur to them that she would make it up. But they said that the jury members were kind of giving her goo-goo eyes and just staring at her and she was kind of flirting with them and... Using her beauty to her benefit. Okay, so here's a question. Back then, did they let women sit on juries? No. If they had put a woman on that jury, she would have been like, oh, hell no. <laughs> You're guilty, right? There's no way. Maybe. There's no, no, she would, no way. Because <laughs> she would know better. She'd look at the other jurors and be like, oh my God, you guys are dumber than a pile of rocks. Are you serious? Yeah, and sometimes jury members would try to slip them their addresses and their names and take these women out on <sighs> dates and stuff afterwards. Oh but we're going to get more into that in the oh in the part two. They're really desperate back then, huh? Not only I'm... were they desperate for alcohol, they're desperate for pretty women. I think it was just a wild time. No kidding. Because they kept referring to it as the Wild West of the modern era, which makes complete sense to me now. Oh, especially with this. Yeah. So, uh -huh. Daniel and 11 listeners, I'm going to leave you there and introduce you to another love killer in the next episode. 
and maybe a couple other little snippets of other ladies on Murderous Row. And then I'll let you in on how all these cases are connected because it's pretty cool. That's a lot. Some of you might already know how these cases are connected, but... Okay, well, I don't. I want to surprise some of you. It'll be a surprise to me. Yeah. Daniel, what did you think of my case? How do you... (laughs) Yeah. The long side gets me every time. How do you find her not guilty would be my thing. How do all 12 find her not guilty? Not Because it was self-defense. In the back? (laughs) When you get the expert saying, "Uh, yeah, she was shot in the back. Well, then what she's telling you is a lie. So then right there, you know, she's lying. So I'd be like, look, if you can't tell the truth, then you must be guilty. You know, she had told Harry that she was in a delicate condition and he still was trying to. No, I get it. She played to their emotions. Absolutely. It's like, oh, my gosh, a guy tried to do her while she's pregnant. And what mm-hmm. a horrible, horrible situation. And then she shot him and he deserves it. And it's great. And she's not guilty. And what was surprising to me is when I was reading all these articles about this case, usually they like to blame the alcohol and the jazz music for these women being tempted. Oh, that's a good point. Right. But in this particular case, that was not blamed for her actions. They didn't even bring that up. No, because it was Harry's fault. Because Harry had tried to... Hurt her. Well, she spun it that he brought the alcohol. But she had paid for it. Yeah, but she didn't tell him that. No, she said she had given him the $6 to go and get the moonshine. Okay. But anyways, what I'm saying is is that her defense was self-defense against Harry's actions towards her. Not that the alcohol and the jazz music made her do it. Exactly. Okay. Where we'll see in other cases... The jazz made me do it, or the alcohol made me do it, or the cabaret dancing made me do it. I've listened to jazz music and had plenty of drinks. Nothing made me do anything. (laughs) Yeah, actually made me fall asleep. Yeah, especially (laughs) not the jazz music and alcohol. I I don't think adult aerobics is going to happen. I think it's going to be like, I'm going to take a nap. Yeah, but think of that time. You're sneaking into a a room. There's jazz music. There's smoke. There's alcohol. There's laughter. There's dancing. Everyone's dressed to the nines. Yeah. I mean, that is a vibe. That's true. Right there. I think you get caught up in that world. I probably would have. Uh, Thank goodness I was born in this time period, right? Yeah. God knew what he was doing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, how come this guy had all this free time and then her husband had to work? How come this other guy didn't have to work? Well, he wasn't a blue collar worker. He worked at a laundromat. I believe he was another bookkeeper at the laundromat. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. This must be a big laundromat. I think so. I think it was one of those where they took in people's clothing. It's not a coin operated laundromat. Right. No. (laughs) Cool. We'll be back. With the second part of The Women of Murderous Row. Awesome. See you guys later. Bye. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Be careful. For marriage is definitely a life sentence. (laughs) And murder. Wait, and divorce is always the best option. Yeah, sometimes murder, but usually (laughs) divorce, yeah. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.